Testament book of Isaiah, Isaiah in chapter 6, and we're going to read just uh, one focal verse uh, to center our thoughts, and that is going to be from the call of Isaiah as it is uh, reported here in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. And so let me invite you as you're able, let's stand in, in honor of the reading and hearing of God's word again. Again, I'm reading from Isaiah 6 and verse 8, wherein the prophet Isaiah writes, Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. May God bless today the reading of His word, the hearing of it, and let's join together in prayer. Gracious and loving God, as we meditate today upon the life of one of thy servants, the prophet Isaiah, who answered the call to go where thou wouldst send him, we ask that you would enlighten our minds. Uh, We know we've just had a lunch, and so we can be a little sluggish, and help us to uh, maintain our attention, and help us to find a spiritual profit, as we have an opportunity once again uh, to meditate over thy word. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. And you may be seated. Thomas Carlyle was a, a British writer who once said, No great man lives in vain. The history of the world is but the biography of great men. And so one approach to studying history is simply to study the great men of history. Uh, I've, I've often said that it's, it's uh, very profitable, and I, and I encourage it as a spiritual discipline, to read the biographies of great Christian men of the past. Uh, to read um, the biographies of Calvin or Luther or uh, even more contemporary men, uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Llewellyn never lets me forget that when one of our children was being born, I was reading uh, from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' uh, biography uh, and reading passages to her uh, from it uh, while she was laboring. Um, and it, it's even good not only to read, but also to listen in these days to podcasts that uh, will give you a good uh, account of a notable Christian's life. In our guys uh, text group this past week, I sent out a link uh, to one particular podcast where uh, the person who does that podcast goes through each week a different uh, man from Christian history. Today, uh, we want to begin a series of biographical messages. But we're not going to focus on uh, men of church history after the time of the apostles, but we are going to look at great men of the Bible. And in particular, I want to look at three men in the Old Testament who were among the great Old Testament, as we call them, writing prophets. And so I want to look at Isaiah, and then Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel. And today we're going to begin by looking at Isaiah. 
Our main source, of course, will be the book of Isaiah. Uh, the book of Isaiah is a, a, is a work of prophecy. It's not a biographical work. It's not an autobiographical work. And if we go through and we look at the book of Isaiah, uh, we won't be able to reconstruct anything like an extensive or exhaustive portrait of the life of Isaiah. We won't learn everything we would like to know about this great man of God. But we can glean some things from his writings that will tell us some key facts about his life. Um, In addition to his life, we also want to give some attention eventually to his writings. And so Isaiah is such an important figure. My hope is maybe today we'll look at his life. And then next Sunday, God willing, we'll look at his writings. We'll look at the book of Isaiah and just sort of give it an overview of it and talk about why it's important. But again, for today, we're just going to look at the life of Isaiah. So uh, we could start with the life of Isaiah by noting his family history and the historical setting of his life. So if you turn and you look at uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to be looking at a number of passages in Isaiah. If you have your Bible and you want to turn to those passages, you can, or you can just listen to me read some of these. But as we saw when we were doing the series through the Minor Prophets, when you look at the prophetic books, usually, very often, in the very first chapter, in the very first verse or two, you will see uh, the author tell you something about himself, give you a setting for his life. And so in Isaiah 1.1, it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And so we learn here the name of his father. His father's name was Amoz. Notice it's not Amos, not the prophet Amos. A different man, the name is spelled differently, it ends with a Z, Amos, in our English spelling. We don't know anything, in fact, about Isaiah's father, but given the fact that Isaiah would become a prophet uh, in the royal house, that he would serve as a king, and in those days, Israel was a theocratic nation, and the prophets uh, served within the court, and they ministered unto the the kings, the royal house. They were kind of like advisors, uh, counselors to the king. And so given that he had this place, it's likely that he came from a prominent and an influential family, probably from a very pious family. Uh, He was given a godly name. The name Isaiah means the Lord or Jehovah is salvation. And so it's similar in, the, in name to the name Joshua in the Old Testament. And of course, Joshua was also the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is simply a Greek form of the name Joshua. And uh, Joshua, again, has a very similar uh, type of meaning. The name Joshua or Jesus means the Lord saves. And Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. We also, as we look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1, we learn the setting for Isaiah's ministry. And he was a prophet who was ministering in what was called the southern kingdom of Judah. 
So he lived at the time that historians called the divided monarchy. In the north there was Israel. Its capital was in Samaria. In the south uh, there was Judah. And its capital was Jerusalem. And his ministry was a southerner. He was ministering in the southern kingdom of Judah. And it even tells us uh, the kings who were ruling and reigning at the time of his ministry. So he reigned during the days of the kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And uh, chronologically speaking, this covered a stretch of time from about the year 739 B.C. to the year 686 B.C. So he had a, a long, profitable public ministry during the time of these kings. Uh, so some 40 or so years of public ministry. Uh, He was, we know, from what he records within this book, an especially helpful advisor and counselor to the last of those kings, a man named Hezekiah. And we'll see that in a few moments. We'll look at some of his interactions with that king. And he lived at a very uh, pivotal time in the history of the people of Israel. Uh, This was the time when Assyria was attacking the land of Israel. The Assyrians came in, they wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. And they might well have also at that same time, 722 B.C., they might well have, have done the same to the southern kingdom of Judah. But God raised up King Hezekiah. And also Isaiah, the prophet, by his side to uh, be instrumental in turning back the Assyrians so that God saved them as a nation, that they would exist for uh, some years more until 586 B.C. uh, when they would fall to the Babylonians. Um, We know, again, that he played a very key role in in some of the most important and significant events in in the life of King Hezekiah. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 32, it says, Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So he was known uh, for having been a chronicler of the life of Hezekiah and of being, again, a counselor to him. The last dated historical event that Isaiah describes is the death of the Assyrian king Sennacherib, which took place in 681 B.C. He notes that in Isaiah 37-38. And so we know that he lived to at least that year and sometime beyond that because he wrote in the rest of the contents of the book of Isaiah. That's a little bit about his family. We also know that he was called. That he experienced a call. And what we see in the Old Testament is that the prophets uh, were called to the ministry by God himself. And so we might think, for example, about Moses in Exodus 3. The Lord appeared to him in the burning bush and told him to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And you might remember, that what, did, what did Moses do? He started to make excuses. I can't go, I stutter, I don't speak well. And God said, it's okay, I'll have Aaron be your mouthpiece. Um, and Jeremiah will see, God will tell Jeremiah, Jeremiah will say, I'm too young, I can't do it. And it's sort of a, something that seems always to have happened, that the prophets would always protest and say, I can't, 
serve. And in Isaiah's case, we have one of the most extended and meaningful descriptions of a prophetic call in all the scriptures. And it's there for us in Isaiah chapter 6. It starts off in in Isaiah 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. See, he gives us a very uh, clear signature stamp, time stamp. So he started uh, his public ministry. He experienced this call at the time when King Hezekiah died in 739 B.C. And he says in Isaiah 6.1, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So he has a vision of God. God is sitting on the throne in the temple. He's enthroned there. And I think it's interesting. It says that uh, his train filled the temple. Probably this means that there was the haze and of his glory and so that God couldn't be seen because uh, God couldn't be seen by man. Man would wither in his sight. And he sees also, as, as we're told in Isaiah 6, uh, the seraphims, which are angelic creatures that serve before the Lord. And he heard, and look, look at verse 3, them crying to one another. What did they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Here are the seraphims worshiping the thrice holy God. And when God speaks, look at verse 4, the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And then he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, verse 5, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And this is Isaiah's protest, we might say. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. And really, this is the experience, isn't it, of every Man, every sinful man who comes into contact with a righteous and holy God. We recognize and acknowledge our own sinfulness before Him. And so He says, I, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then the Lord uh, apparently gives instructions to one of the seraphim who comes with a live coal in His hand that has been taken from the, with tongs from, from the altar. And He laid it in verse 7 upon... Isaiah's mouth, there's a a purification that goes on. And it said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And here's a great picture of what a holy and righteous God does with a man who acknowledges his sin before that holy God. Well, he, he extends to that man forgiveness a means for the sin to be taken away of course this is anticipating the ultimate uh, means by which God has provided even through uh, the life and the ministry the death the resurrection of Christ and then uh, the verse we read he said he heard a voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send and who will go for us by the way there's the the royal plural, like, like we've seen in Genesis 1. Um, let us make man in our image. And here is God, the thrice holy God, saying, who will go for us? And what's the answer of Isaiah? 
having had the tongue put on his lips, here am I, send me. What's really intriguing then is the commission that he's given. Sometimes people stop at verse 8, but it's important to go on to verse 9 because we know verses 9 and 10 were very important for the early Christians. We'll show you in just a minute why. But he said to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and convert and be healed. And what Basically what God is telling Isaiah is I'm going to send you to a people who will not listen to you. I'm going to send you to speak, to preach, to prophesy to Many people who will shut their ears and shut their eyes to what you say. And everyone who's commissioned uh, to bear witness to Christ understands that we'll often receive more rejection than we do acceptance. This is part and parcel of what it means to minister in a fallen world. And uh, so he's given that, again, that uh, commissioning by God, And like I said, this becomes a very important passage uh, in the New Testament. Christ Himself drew upon this passage. If you look over in Matthew 13, when Christ was teaching the disciples in parables, and His disciples were asking why He spoke in parables to them, and Christ um, drew upon this very passage uh, to explain that. If you look at Ma- Matthew 13, verse 12, um, well, we'll start actually in verse 11. They asked him, verse 10, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he said, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more, more, he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled... The prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Also, if you look over at Acts 28... We read this not too long ago when Paul finally made it to Rome and uh, the Jews came to him and he preached to them the gospel uh, from his, the house where he was under house arrest and we're told in Acts 28-24 some believed the things which were spoken and some believed not. How did Paul break up the meeting? By quoting these words from Isaiah's calling. Look at Acts 28, verse 25. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed after that Paul had spoken one word. Well spoke the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and not perceive. For the heart of this people is, gross, is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and they will hear it. 
So, Isaiah came from a likely noble family. He served in the courts of various kings. He received a call to his vocation. What else do we know about him? We know that he was a husband and he was a father. And there is mention made in the book of Isaiah of two sons. Look over at Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 3. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shear Jashub, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And this is an unusual name. I haven't even seen any Christian homeschoolers name their child this. You might get, put this on your list. Come here, Shear Jashub, uh, and take care of your chores. Um, well, uh, this name was a prophetic name. And prophets used to do this. We know that uh, Hosea, for example, gave his sons symbolic names. And this name means a remnant shall return. And so God had given his son a prophetic name. Then, then we can look over one more chapter. Look at chapter 8. We have mention of a second son who was also given a symbolic name. And we have a mention of the prophet's wife, who is described as being a prophetess. And so if you look over in chapter 8, and uh, we'll pick it up there in verse 3. And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. And so that name, it's another wonderful name, Maher Shalahashbaz. This means uh, something like hasten to the spoil and hurry to the prey. And he named his son that to be symbolic of the pillaging that the Assyrians would do in the land of Israel. Again, um, he had a wife. We're never never told her name. But she is described as being a prophetess. And uh, it's interesting, in our day, people influenced by feminism, there are many people, anytime there's a mention of a woman as, as a prophetess in the Old Testament, like, ah, women in ministry, here we go, here we go. But when you, when you look carefully and, and honestly at the Old Testament, what you find, first of all, is there are very few, very few women who are described as prophetesses. In fact, there are only a handful uh, in, in the entire Old Testament. Miriam is called a prophetess in Exodus 15.20. Deborah, one of the judges in Judges 4.4. Huldah, the prophetess in 2 Kings 22.14. And there is a wicked prophetess named Noadiah, sort of the feminine form of the the name Noah, Noadiah, in Nehemiah 6.14. That's it. That's all the women prophets that are mentioned in the Old Testament, along with Isaiah's wife. And so I guess with Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, Noadiah, and Isaiah's wife, there are five, and four of the five are positive, we could say, one is negatively presented. And we turn over to the New Testament... There is Anna, the prophetess, Luke 2.36, who is mentioned at the time of the birth of Christ. And then there are no mentions in the rest of the New Testament of women prophetesses. 
The last one mentioned is Revelation 2.20, a woman given a symbolic name Jezebel because she was a false teacher. In the Old Testament, even when, when a, women are, are mentioned as prophetesses, like, like Deborah, most times it's sort of a shaming event for the men. That this was, this, this was how depraved and degenerate the times were. That there were not spiritual men who were being called uh, to this ministry. And so there were some godly women uh, on occasion that the Lord used. But again, there are, there, are, there are no women who serve in public ministry offices in the early church and the New Testament and so forth. What we talked about earlier in our study of Genesis, Genesis 1.27, men and women are spiritual equal. They're both made in the image of God, but they have different roles, tasks in the ways in which they serve. Men aren't better than women, women aren't better than men, but the, the office of ministry, we see clearly in the New Testament, is going to be reserved for qualified uh, men. But, it's interesting that Isaiah had a wife. She was a prophetess. We don't know her name. And he had two sons to whom he gave symbolic names. Isaiah, like many of the prophets, engaged in symbolic prophetic actions. This, is, this, was, this was very common for the prophets. They not only spoke the word of God, sometimes they lived out different um, roles to show things through their actions. And we have one example of this from the ministry of Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 20. Isaiah chapter 20. And in the opening verses of Isaiah 20, we have a description of a fairly unusual prophetic symbolic action that Isaiah was called upon to perform by the Lord. So look at Isaiah 20. We'll start in verse 2. At the same time spake the Lord by Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from off thy loins, and put off thy shoe from thy foot. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Like as my servant Isaiah hath walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians prisoners and the Ethiopians captive, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Isaiah was called upon by God to walk about for the space of three years naked and barefoot as a symbol of what would happen to the Egyptians and the Cushites, the Ethiopians, when they rebelled against the Assyrians. And so uh, it's, it's a strange thing. We know Isaiah from his writings, but he also engaged in these types of symbolic actions. When we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, our perfect prophet, priest, and king, we know he also engaged in prophetic actions like cleansing the temple, like washing his disciples' feet. And so this was part of the prophet's ministry. Again, Isaiah, one of the key things about him was his ministry to King Hezekiah. His greatest moments came when he was serving 
at the king's side at the time when Assyria threatened to destroy Jerusalem. And the king was fearful. And God led Isaiah to stand beside him and to stand up to the Assyrians. Look over at Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37. And we have a description of this. We can start in verse 14. Isaiah 37 and verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers. These were letters from the Assyrian king telling them basically they, they needed to They needed to surrender Jerusalem or they were going to be destroyed. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed unto the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone, in all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. There's creation right there, isn't it? Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which have sent to reproach the living God. Of a truth, the Lord, the king of Assyria, have laid waste all the nations and their countries, and have cast their gods into the fire. For there were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, wherefore, therefore rather, they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that Thou art the Lord, even Thou only. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a leader of our nation who, when we came into trouble, would go before the Lord and lay everything out before Him? That's what Hezekiah did. And in response to that, God heard that prayer, and He sent uh, unto the king His servant, Isaiah. And so Isaiah came to, to bring the word of the Lord uh, unto the king. Look at verse 30, uh, 33. This is Isaiah coming. Therefore thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord, for I will defend the city and save it for my own, my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and twenty-five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Some people have speculated about naturalistic reasons, you know, dysentery in the camp or something like that. But I think the best way to say is that God simply heard the prayers of His people. And He can do as He pleases. And He wiped out the Assyrian army and drove them back. And they did not destroy um, Jerusalem as they had wanted to do. And God used the prayers of Hezekiah and He used the prophecy of Isaiah to accomplish this. One more event from the life of, of Hezekiah. After this great delivery, Hezekiah then had a personal crisis. He had to steer the country through a national crisis. And then he had a personal crisis. And let me tell you, friends, this is a crisis all of us are going to have. All of us at some time are going to have a sickness unto death. Ben mentioned earlier, last Sunday, we were at the nursing home. And we would had this gentleman who had been attending, coming to our worship services. And we had all come to enjoy him. And he was one of the youngest men who lived out there. I'm not sure of all the circumstances, but he was, he's, he was only in his early 60s. He was living at Louisa Health and Rehab Center. And... Um, uh, 
he obviously was extremely unhealthy, but he, he would come to our meetings and we got to know him. And we went in there to meet last Sunday and uh, we, he didn't come and we asked the folk who were there, where's, where's Louie? And they said, oh, I'm sorry to tell you, he passed away a couple weeks ago. And, um, you know, we were, we were all a little shocked, weren't we? We were all like, wow. You know, we, had really, we didn't realize how we had come, uh, gotten to know this man and enjoyed getting to know him. And we were really thankful as we were talking later with one of the other residents who, who said that he had only started attending the services there in the last year during the time we'd been going out there. And of course, it's in God's hands, but he heard once a month, he heard something of the gospel. Whether that came into his heart and life, we don't know. We leave it in God's hands. But uh, we're thankful we had the, that opportunity to, to minister there. Um, and there, there are many others like that there too uh, that we will have a chance to minister to. Well, I, well, Hezekiah had a crisis that came in his life. If you look at chapter 38, verse 1, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. That's a true message. That's the message every preacher comes with. Set your house in order, for you will die and not live. The old sayings of the Puritans was, they would exhort the preachers to preach as dying men to dying men. And Hezekiah, we're told in verse 2, turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Hezekiah was a praying king and a weeping king. And then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to him during the national crisis. The Lord came to him during this personal crisis. And again, God had never given a timetable to his prophet for when Hezekiah would die. And what we learn is that God revealed that he had extended the days of Hezekiah. As he tells his prophet, verse 5, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer and I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days fifteen years. And I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. And this shall be a sign unto you, unto thee rather from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he hath spoken. And he throws this miracle on at the end, verse 8. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees, which has gone down in the sun, dial of Ahaz, ten degrees backward. So the sun returned ten degrees, by which degree it was gone down. He made the sun the shadow of the sundial go backwards. Well, he's God. He can do as he pleases. He says, let there be light and there's light. And so, uh, anyways, we, we have here, friends, just a few insights into the man, uh, Isaiah. Um, what about his death? We have no record in the Bible as to how Isaiah died. However, there is a strong Jewish tradition, and it appears in some extra-biblical Jewish literature. And it tells us that Isaiah 
after the death of King Hezekiah, that there arose a wicked king in Israel. This is historically accurate. His name was Manasseh. And the Jewish tradition is that Manasseh put Isaiah to death. Despite all the good things he had done for the kingdom, despite all the ways he had served, that he was put to death. And according to this tradition, uh, he was put to death in a ghastly way. Uh, He was sawed in half. And there's some, uh, I mention that just because there's some possibility that this is what is being referred to in Hebrews 11. If you look at Hebrews 11 in the New Testament, we call this the Faith Hall of Fame. In Hebrews 11, Paul, I believe Paul is the author. He goes through and he talks about all the great saints of the Old Testament, how they did things by faith. And when you get to the end of Hebrews 11, he sort of gives a summary of everybody else in the Old Testament. <laughs> and he's covered the big, big guns, you know, Moses and Abraham and Sarah and so forth. And at the end, look at verse 32. He says, And what shall I say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions. Talking about Daniel, right? Quenched the violence of fire. Maybe talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in, in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonments. Verse 37, they were stoned. They were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. But go back to verse 37. That line, they were sawn asunder. Many believe that referred to Isaiah. That was the fate that undertook Isaiah. Well, why is there good spiritual discipline to look at the biographies of great men from the past, great women of the past, It is to remind us that we have as believers a godly heritage. We have models of those who have gone before us. Men like Isaiah who served the Lord faithfully in their own times. And we are thereby encouraged to be faithful in our generation. We may not minister as Isaiah did at the highest levels of our society. We may not walk the corridors of power. We may not have to offer up our lives as Isaiah apparently did. But we make the commitment to serve the Lord where He has sovereignly placed us. We can say with Isaiah as He did at His call, Here am I. Send me. Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we do give thee thanks for thy servants of old, men of whom the world was not worthy. And we thank thee for the service of thy servant Isaiah, whose very name declared that salvation comes from thee. 
And so help us, O oh God, as we consider uh, our own lives, as we number our own days, teach us how to have a heart of wisdom to know how we would live in, in the times in which you have placed us. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.